0: Relatively Prime was made possible by the 159 totally amazing, awesome people who supported the Kickstarter project. I don't have time to thank them all by name, but I do have time to thank two of them. So thank you, Greg Bailey and David Stroop, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Cody Palmer, Douglas Dollar Stewart, Colin Wright, Jay Frosting, Daniel Greenspun, and Martin Dominic. Without all of you, this show... Never would have been possible. I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime, stories from the mathematical domain. similarities between mathematics and music they are their own vocabulary their own written language their own way of describing the world around us but while they are similar the Venn diagram that contains mathematics and music doesn't always seem to have a huge overlap well today I bring you three stories from that intersection first a story of mathematics applied to music in a way that I sincerely doubt any musician would have thought up. And then, the story of what happens when you take mathematician and musician and combine it into a single person. And then finally, the story of a composer. Specifically, the composer whose piece I'm speaking over right now. And how he has harnessed the power of numbers as a music creation tool.
1: My name is Scott Ricard. I am an associate professor in, uh, I suppose, electronic engineering It would be, uh, the, the department name is quite long, but electronic engineering is my area of study. Uh, and I am the founding director of the uh, Complex and Adaptive Systems Laboratory at UCD, which is University College Dublin.
0: I first heard about Professor Ricard because of a video of a TEDx talk that he gave that found itself rather rapidly spread around the mathematical community on the internet. This talk had a rather unique topic. It was about, well, you know what? It might be better to let him tell you about it. So you you do uh, electronic engineering. I'm not here to talk to you about that, technically. Yeah. Uh,
1: My PhD is actually in uh, applied mathematics, uh, applied and computational mathematics, but I've always had a very keen interest in music. Uh, and my undergraduate degrees were in uh, electronic engineering, specifically in sonar uh, sound processing. So I guess I started my career in uh, kind of audio processing of sonar sounds, and I've kind of stayed in the audio theme my entire life, always with this background passion around, math, around music. Um, unfortunately, my abilities aren't, aren't, aren't the same as my passion for music. So uh, that's why I'm a practicing mathematician uh, with an interest in music as opposed to the other way around.
0: So from from my viewpoint this clearly means that you are literally the most qualified person in the world to talk to me about uh musical beauty. Uh, <laughs> so uh what is musical beauty?
1: Yeah, so um one set of one one um mind frame we might argue would say that uh Things that are beautiful are based on symmetries or repetitions or patterns. Um, And for example, in many uh, symphonic works, there is the expectation of repetition that's set up because repetitions occur uh, often within the structure of the piece, as well as within the individual structure of the melodies. Uh, You could think of... uh, And right there, just in that first theme, you already see that there's so many uh, repeated uh, little kind of uh, you know, micro themes in there. And it's in setting up that expectation for repetition and then breaking it, I believe that uh, a lot of what we call beauty uh, is created. Of course, beauty is in the eye or ear of the beholder in this case. Um, so um, I would argue that like pure random music, for example, it would be difficult to classify that as beautiful. Although, to somebody, it might be... For some people, it might sound beautiful, but I would say that that's probably not what the general populace would call beauty.
0: Then, what would ugly music be like? So, if that if that's beautiful music, what would ugly music be?
1: Well, aside from, you know, somebody taking a bunch of uh, cowbells and dropping them downstairs. Um, so if we first, let's say that we have to restrict ourselves to certain, uh, to, to certain rules and then within those rules to try and write the ugliest music. So one set of rules that we could do is we could say that we're only going to use notes on the kind of you know, standard uh, Western scale, you know, the, maybe the 88 notes of the piano. Uh, so that we're not going to vary the instruments. We're not going to vary how loud the instruments play. Uh, we're going to pick one instrument, and we're only going to use the 88 notes of that instrument. Um, So that might be one thing that we try and do. Uh, And as a mathematician, of course, we try uh, try and simplify everything as much as possible first, and then maybe solve a special case. So let's say that we're only going to look at the 88 notes of the piano, and then let's also say that we can only play each note once, rather than worrying about things like chords uh, or, or the uh, you know, obviously the uncountably infinite number of ways that you can play multiple notes uh, or you know, notes in different sequences where you're repeating notes. So let's say we're only going to play each note once. And right there, that limits the number of melodies that we can consider to 88 factorial, it turns out, which obviously is a impossibly large number, but still, it's a finite number. Uh, and from that 88 factorial number that we have, we want to basically find the ugliest one. And let's define ugly as something which has no repetitions. We already have the no note repetition uh, mandate, uh, but the other no repetition could be that if I go up by a third, let's say between two notes, uh, you know, a C to an E, I can go up by a third in no other. no other adjacent notes are allowed to go up by a third. So there's no repetition of any interval. Uh, and that was basically the guidelines that I used to create this, uh, the perfect ping or the ugliest piece of music that I called it.
0: Uh, how, <laughs> I mean, th- this, this is the the question. that How do you go about making this piece? How do you go about creating something devoid of, of, of these patterns that, it, I think we are probably naturally drawn to creating. Yeah. Well,
1: the uh, yeah, the, the only reason that we would know that you could create such patterns um, is really a, a kind of a, well, it's a it's a serendipitous discovery in that this sonar engineer by the name of John Costas was trying to create a, a, the perfect sonar ping, and he realized that. In our musical analogy, if you could create a piece of music that was devoid of patterns, that that would make a really, really good sonar ping, since sonar pings uh, are perfect if they don't look like any shift of themselves in time or frequency, i.e. if they don't contain any patterns that repeat. Uh, and he could construct them by hand. You can construct very short ones, but he wanted to construct big ones with lots of notes, uh, and he didn't know how to do this. So uh, it turns out that he had uh, read an article in a magazine um, by this guy Solomon Gollum, a famous professor, uh, who had written kind of an article about games in this magazine, and John thought that this guy would be the guy that he should contact. He might know about where these patterns are and how to create them. No one had thought about these patterns, it turns out. Uh, Solomon Gollum was a very good discrete mathematician. And he would know if anybody had constructed these things. And he couldn't find any references to them. And within uh, the period of a few months, he invented uh, two ways which rely on prime number theory that, uh, to this day, remain the only uh, discovered generators of these patterns. And it's based on prime numbers, based on this Galois field theory that this mathematics invented uh, uh, hundreds of years ago, by this French mathematician. So it's uh, the fact that these patterns exist, that they exist at all, is actually quite interesting. From a mathematical point of view, you can prove uh, that they really, from a kind of a random point of view, they shouldn't exist. Uh, people have written papers that show that randomly uh, these things can't, as, as, as the, the number of notes you try and find in the pattern, as that number gets larger and larger, you're not gonna ever find any of these patterns. The chance that they randomly exist goes is, becomes vanishingly small, and the expected number of them falls to zero very quickly. Uh, and yet we know that they do exist, and we can construct them for infinitely large sizes of, uh, of uh, for, for as many notes as you would want. Uh, you want a pattern with more than a thousand notes, and we can create them because of this because of this uh, mathematical curiosity.
0: Uh, I can actually still remember when I uh, first heard this, this piece, the, this world's ugliest piece of, of music. And I, I remember feeling kind of odd about it, because I listened to it and I didn't find myself hating it. I mean, there, there's plenty of music out there that I hate. There's plenty of music out there that I love. But one thing that I found with all of this music is that it elicited some sort of strong emotional response, be it either hate or love. What I what I found from from your piece is that it actually elicited zero emotional response whatsoever. It was something that was just kind of there. I, I recognized that it was a musical instrument playing, but I couldn't recognize it as as music at all. And so it it seemed like something other to me when I heard it.
1: It's interesting that that you say it has no emotive response. We obviously, if you read the comments that people have on uh, on the various uh, YouTube or other other um, recordings of it, um, yeah, lots of people have very different opinions about what it is and isn't. Um, most people agree that it's not ugly, and I, I certainly don't think it's ugly. I actually think it's quite beautiful. Uh, the ugliest piece of music was more of a of a bit of a of a provocative title as opposed to a, a, an accurate descriptive title. Um, so I think that, uh, it's interesting that you say that that there's no emotion. I like that. I like that interpretation. Um, when I hear the piece of music, um, I, I feel a great deal of emotion, um, almost as if it's always speaking to me as, as I said in in the description of the piece before it was played, you know, search for a pattern, search for repetition and then revel in the fact that you'll never hear one. So I, I, I find the piece as if it's always longing towards something, longing toward what we expect in Western music, and yet never ever obtaining it. So I, I find it a quite a kind of, a, of a, an emotional um, angst uh, of a piece to listen to, although I've listened to it so many times now uh, in this generation that I, I find it quite beautiful because I know I know what's going to happen next. I have my favorite bits as it is as <laughs> well uh, because I've repeated it. I've re- it's, it's a piece that's only meant to be listened to once in some ways because uh, once you listen to it multiple times, then you, of course, get to you, you, the piece itself is a, uh, the structure itself becomes a repetition, so uh, uh, one giant repetition. So, I,
0: I mean, from from a mathematics standpoint, this this is very interesting to me, uh, and I'm sure to other people, you know, who are interested in mathematics. What sort of reactions have you had, say, from the uh, group of people who are not mathematicians but instead musicians?
1: Yeah, well, lots of musicians rightly um, point out that I'm not a musician uh, and don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to musicology uh, and uh, that's fine, I don't uh, as, as I said, my passion and my abilities, uh, or my passion and my knowledge are are, are, are are divergent there so the reaction of some people is is to say that, oh, musicologists have known about these things, blah 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 and you know, I don't you know that uh, there's nothing new to see here I would disagree with that because I think the people that say that fail to appreciate and this is my own failing, uh, fail to appreciate the uniqueness of these structures and how unusual it is that we even know that they exist. Uh, and the other group of people that I find interesting are those that basically say, oh sure, uh, the piece that you've created you claimed was ugly but it's not that ugly because you didn't vary other things like the instrument that it was played or uh, the dynamic. Those are the two things that people like to say. Uh, and yeah, that's true. I could have varied lots of things. I could have had the piece played in different cities at different times. Uh, so that there was, in fact, no hope of repetition because no one could hear the whole piece. I mean, there's, there's lots of, there's uh, lots of, no one actually suggested that one, but that's my, uh, that's my extremal point there, that there's, there's lots of things we could have varied. Uh, and uh, what this was, and I, I guess I should have explained this as well in in the talk that I gave, is that, uh, that this is kind of bearing it down to its bare, you know, going, down to the bare essentials, to the simplest case. So, and in restricting it, I think we learn something. Uh, once you take off all restrictions, I'm not sure exactly what we can learn from that. Uh, other than that, infinite variety produces, uh, you know, absolutely, uh, absolutely horrendous music. I would imagine if you try and vary absolutely everything. So this was within the basic t- time and tone. Uh, space of music. What what, what we could you know, pushing the boundaries there in terms of going out on the tail of pattern free.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for all your time.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you.
0: And now that we've heard Professor Ricard talk about this song, we should probably give it a listen. Schneider is a PhD student in mathematics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, and he also happens to be the lead singer of the band, The Apples in Stereo, and one of the co-founders of the Elephant Six Collective. So I knew that he had to have a good story about the intersection of mathematics and music.
2: So Pythagoras was an ancient Greek philosopher and mathematician. He and his followers basically they believed that there are numbers sort of as the backdrop of the physical world and I guess the mental world, too. He discovered the laws of sort of music theory and behavior of like resonant instruments, strings, things that would strike flutes and tubes of air and stuff like that. So if you take like a vibrating string, like a guitar string, right? So you touch the string in the, or, or press it in the, uh, in the middle of the string. That's at the 12th fret on the guitar, but it divides the string into two parts and uh, you hear a harmonic that's like an octave higher. As you touch other points along the string, you know, dividing it up into certain lengths, you divide the vibrating string up into a bunch of like little mini waveforms. You can actually see it if you do it on the guitar and you hit the harmonic. You can like look at the string and you can see that it actually is divided up into a bunch of little vibrating areas that are divided by nodes that ha- that aren't vibrating. it's so super cool. It turns out that the notes that we hear in the musical scale, uh, the harmonics that is, the harmonics that we hear mm-hmm. when we uh, play physical instruments, are um, related to whole numbers. Because you divide up the string, or let's say it's a column of air, these things get divided up into the same, into in- integer number of parts as the waveforms are kind of like, you know, bouncing around or, or whatever in the medium. That same thing is related to number theory. That is, number theory is sort of, very broadly, the theory of sort of patterns that ripple through the whole numbers. Well, I mean, there's so much more to it, actually. So maybe I want to take back what I just said. But anyway, um, so Pythagoras was the first number theorist. He was also like the first music theorist. Uh, he was a vegetarian, and I like that because I'm a vegetarian. And um, I'm sure he had his flaws. All of those things are really, really cool. So the Pythagorean scale is the scale that you get from all of those harmonics, not including their octaves, that you can get from touching a string and dividing it up into integer numbers of little mini waves. So the musical scale that you get, if you basically tune to the resonant properties of physical instruments of the harmonics, is the Pythagorean scale. You could take a string and get all the harmonics, touch all the points where you would produce harmonic frequencies, and tune another string, a set of strings, to each of those tones, and you'd find that there were 12 different tones and those 12 tones are basically the scale that we hear. When we play a piano, let's say, for up from like a given note up to the next octave above it by hitting all of the white and the black keys in order. That's a chromatic scale. So a chromatic scale is just a scale where all of the notes or the tones in the scale are like equally spaced apart. But the Pythagorean scale is not a chromatic scale, but it's very close to a 12-tone chromatic scale. But if you take the octave and you divide it up the right way, you get a scale where all of the notes are equally spaced, and that's the scale that we play in the modern world, at least on, like, pianos, synthesizers, and that kind of stuff. That was, like, innovated, I think. It was, in, like, it was evolving around the time of Bach. But the Pythagorean scale doesn't hit all of those equally spaced chromatic notes. Exactly. Some of the notes are a little lower, some are a little higher. But, like, when you hear it, when you're, like, singing it or something, you can't tell the difference. In fact, I'm pretty sure, like, guitars and string instruments might be tuned the way you tune them, just when you tune one to itself, I think you tune it to a Pythagorean scale. I think because you're you're dealing with the properties of the vibrating string to produce your tuning with harmonics and stuff. My friend Tim McIntyre mm-hmm. plays in a band called Bonhamlin, Started the Elephant Six Collective, or co-started it with me and a lot of uh, and a group of friends. Uh, was very interested in temperament and in tuning and listening to like modern classical music. He had come to hate hearing the the fudge factor. <laughs> um, when you tune instruments to this equally spaced tuning it kind of, the tuning fights a little bit against the resonant properties of the instrument. Because the instrument, the instrument doesn't care exactly what your formula was that you used to tune it. It just wants to sit there and resonate nicely in a Pythagorean tuning. The instrument does. But here you've tuned its notes, it's slightly off from that tuning. And so all those harmonics that are on the vibrating string will be sort of like fighting against the notes that you're playing, especially if you play chords. So your, your instrument, just a little bit, is like struggling or fighting against those chords. And this would bother my friend Jim. Um, He wanted to hear stuff only in just intonation, kind of like the natural tuning to the natural harmonics of the instrument. He was talking about this one day. I was at his apartment. I should note note that he's an incredible genius. And so, like, he's really feeling this stuff. It's as If your stereo had one blown speaker and the other speaker had, like, a crackle, and you'd be, like, just crazy about it. (laughs) He was, you know, very passionate about this topic. As he was telling that it occurred to me that there are these beat frequencies that are sort of wandering around inside the music and that maybe you could tune your notes, you could tune them in a way that those frequencies would, it would seem natural. At the time I was studying the prime number theorem and like Riemann's work towards the prime number theorem. It involves like waveforms and logarithms. So like the first thing that popped into my mind was, what about tuning waveforms to logarithms? Uh, as I left my friend's house, um, I got in my car, I wrote down the formula and um, sort of wondered if that would be musical, if it would be some totally just random, crazy series of tones that would sound mechanical or something, like maybe a machine would produce them. I just I didn't know. Um, the point is that if you, you generate, say, two pitches, like a, two sine waves, let's say, and you play them together, there's a third frequency that's generated that's called the beat frequency. So let's say one frequency is 500 hertz, the other frequency is 400 hertz. So you take the difference between those two frequencies, which is 100 hertz in this case. That is called the beat frequency. Sort of like a little wobbling that you hear in the sound. My thought was if you tune the pitches to the sequence of logarithms of the whole numbers, then the difference between two logarithms, like let's say your pitches are proportional to log 6 and log 3, the difference between those, log 6 minus log 3, is also, it's the logarithm of the ratio of the two pitches. So, of course, log 6 minus log 3, that beat frequency is also proportional to log 6 over 3, which is log 2. And log 2 is also a note in our scale. You have a sequence of pitches, a scale, and when you play chords in the scale, the beat frequencies that are generated between the pitches could also be members of the scale if you chose them right. It seems kind of theoretically nice and kind of beautiful, and in a totally non-natural resonating properties of instruments kind of way, it gives you this natural sort of musical scale where you have beat frequencies that are related to the pitches you're playing. After about a year of wandering about it, I was talking to my brother-in-law, Craig Morris, who's a musician and has a studio. We were talking about it, he was like, you know, I think if you just use a silent wave generator and generated those pitches, I could turn them into MIDI files for you to play on a keyboard. I was like, no way, that'd be great. And remember the first time I like, actually like pressed the notes, it was so shocking. sequence of the keys and the notes associated with them on a keyboard or on a piano, you know, you grow up with the sounds, these notes attached to that particular arrangement of keys. Most of these pitches are not approximating the Pythagorean scale. these logarithmic tones. The first few tones in the scale, the lowest notes, are kind of spaced kind of far apart. And as you go from one note to the note right next to it, the notes get closer and closer together. The number of, like, notes in each octave kind of increase exponentially, so I had limited it to the, to, to the octave. That of notes, the twelve tones actually that are from the notes that are proportional to the natural log of four, up to the log sixteen, because log sixteen is twice log four, and to get the octave of a pitch, you just double the frequency. There were twelve tones, four, five, six, up through sixteen. There were twelve tones in that octave, and uh, it pretty much blew my mind. It was like hearing your like m- your mom turn towards you and like start to speak in like you know a deep man's voice. Hearing a cat. Sing like a bird. It sort of made my brain hurt a little bit or something because it was so different from the scale that is ingrained in my synapses. Hearing these weird beat frequencies and stuff, when you play chords, they kind of sound like crickets chirping. If you play other chords, it sounds like elevator or machinery or bells ringing. I called it non-Pythagorean just because it's not Pythagorean. And um, I thought it kind of catchier than logarithmic scale. The thing is that the Apples and were are a pop band and we try to make really catchy music up Feel good to listen to to your ears. At the same time, we sort of are in the habit of putting lots of sound effects and strange sounds in our music and also um, stringing the songs together on an album with, uh, with link tracks. been experimenting with the scale while we were recording our album, New Magnetic Wonder. The album had quite a lot of kind of experimental link tracks and different little pieces, and so um, it made sense to put things that sounded like alien music in between it. A couple of the first compositions went on New Magnetic Wonder and had discovered this one chord that sounded especially beautiful. It had sort of this open ringing quality to the beat frequencies. They're very slow, phasing through the beat frequencies, sort of like the resonances of like ringing bells or like maybe a Tibetan prayer bowl or something like that. And so um, I recorded just that chord and we made it the opening chord of the album. My thought was, we have a new chord, let's start a new album with it. As we were mixing the album we had um at the studio where we were mixing bryce goggins studio in brooklyn trout studios which is incredible we did the last two albums m- m- a large chunk of the recording there and mixing so we were, when we were mixing we had the songs going through an oscilloscope and so with the oscilloscope you can kind of see the fuzzy pulsating waveforms go by as the music goes by on the screen generally it looks something like really fast random looking sine waves p- passing by or sort of like this fuzzy globule that looks kind of like a galaxy. As the music's playing, the thing's kind of pulsing in and out in a sort of staticky way. We had it set to this galaxy-looking configuration, and as the chord played, um, as you get to the single sine wave, the first tone on the album, there was just sort of this like, nice, neat you know, oscillation on the screen, like you might imagine a single sine wave. As the second note and then the third note came in, suddenly the thing turned into like, this 3D vector graphics-looking knot I was spinning slowly on the oscillator, on the oscilloscope screen. Like I said, the oscilloscope usually is a fuzzy-looking galaxy of static, this little blob kind of like throbs on the screen. And here we have a pulsating vector graphic-looking knot like might have been generated by like a 70s computer art. We were all like looking at the oscilloscope screen like, whoa, that is crazy. The oscilloscope must have been registering the beat frequencies, which, you know, and the whole thing kind of simplified mathematically. And that was like being shown on the uh, screen of the Scope. For the second album that we used it on, which was Travelers in Space and Time, that was like the Apple's, our most recent album. The album had a futuristic theme. The whole album was intended as a time capsule for listeners in the future. Uh, I thought that, for, for the record, it would be fun to record a song, like a, a rock song, where we use the logarithmic scale. And the root note of the scale, just the, the first tone, the opening tone of the logarithmic scale, can be tuned to any pitch that you want. So I tuned it to middle C. I, actually, the thing is, I, I knew what the frequency for middle C was, the numerical frequency, so I based the whole scale on that just because I knew it off the top of my head. You have a, the middle C is one of the notes in the scale, and also the fifth of the root note of the scale, which is G in that case, is also a member of the scale. It's just that it falls on a different key. I thought, well, we can have a song where the song just goes between G and C, which I can play on the guitar and we can play on a bass, any good pop song or garage rock song could have the restriction that it only has two chords. That, that, that could be an awesome song. So I'm going to write just a two-chord song. Then I can both play a regular song and sing a song that's in the regular scale that I like hearing and that's catchy to me, the chromatic scale. And then I can also have passages where we would go into the non Pythagorean scale. So I wrote, a, I wrote a catchy garage rock song called CPU. It's this raw garage rock song that doesn't have any chords. All of the instruments are just playing notes. If you play chords, then you're, running, then you're introducing notes that won't be in the logarithmic scale at all. It just kind of rides between G and C, and there are sections of the song where you have the logarithmic scale playing. It has kind of a spacey, garage-rocky kind of sound and strings, chords and stuff. And then when the singing is happening, it's in the regular scale. So it goes between kind of catchy, weird, catchy, weird, <laughs> and so on throughout the song. to experiment with different sounds and write fun songs in different ways and and, and, you know most importantly it's there's some theoretical interest to me in the thing about the beat frequencies but the most important thing is that you just have different tools to make music and to make sound with and it's fun to play with those sorts of things you know you're like painting a painting you look down there's some leaves on the ground you stick them on the painting you know like that's what this is there's cool stuff lying around in the universe and you use it in your art project and that you know and for me that was music for this music of course but like um that's um i think that that's all i've got did that answer your question
3: your name J O N A T H A N M I D D L E T O N My name is Jonathan Middleton. I'm a composer and I teach music composition and theory at Eastern Washington University.
0: I no, you're not actually a mathematician uh, which is which is weird for me. I am used to used to speaking to mathematicians. So how did you uh, start to get interested in say kind of the intersection of, of music and, and mathematics as, as you have.
3: Well I'm a composer but I've always had very strong interests uh, in interdisciplinary environments and I had learned that there's a creative process called algorithmic composition which involves music composition through algorithms and I had students and myself included who were quite unfamiliar with algorithms and so for just for a little bit of context uh, most musically trained individuals are not familiar with algorithms but mathematicians are computer science students are so what I wanted to create was an environment where my students and myself could work with algorithms in a user-friendly environment to create music. And at the same time I wanted to create an environment where non-musically trained individuals could create music as well. So basically uh, I developed music algorithms with the assistance of uh, students at Eastern Washington University and a grant and uh, basically put it up on the web as freeware for anyone to use whether they wanted to create music or not, it was is entirely up to them. But I use it to create music, and other people might just use it as a sort of sound graphing tool to hear digits of pi or hear digits of uh, hear hear the Fibonacci series or what, whatever you want to input into it, into the program. So there, there's a there's a decent
0: amount in there that I, that I want to unpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things when you say uh, you know. Algorithmic composition. What, what does that actually mean?
3: Well, one could say that when Bach wrote canons, he was using an algorithm. I mean, a canon is an algorithm, or uh, many medieval and, and Renaissance composers used algorithms in, in a musical context. Step one write a melody, step two add some chords, step three. Uh, add more voices, add text, that certainly can be understood as algorithmic. But the type of algorithms that are being used today, or even since the 50s, those types of algorithms are very sophisticated, or or many are. So, if, if one were to take numbers and transform them into melodies, there are a set of steps to do that, and that's the type of algorithm I, I work with or the types that I work with. They're, they're not complex, but they're complex enough so that there are several steps that that are needed to help guide someone who's unfamiliar with them. But it's true, if you, if you look at the general definition of an algorithm, canons are algorithms and canons have been er, been around for years, uh, many hundreds of years. So. Um, I guess there are two ways to approach that definition. <laughs> <laughs> the broader way or, or a more specific way. And uh, Like, for example, there are composers who might use like a flock algorithm or um, genetic algorithms to create music. Um, it, it, chaos algorithms. I mean, there are all kinds of... Really neat algorithms out there that one could apply in a musical context or with a musical result, and there are lots of uh, very sophisticated software to do that. Some of some of the software are free, but many of those software are not are not as user friendly as as they could be. So that's where what I do is maybe a little bit different. I try to provide something that's user friendly obviously more limited in its scope but uh, able to help someone get a result pretty quick uh... and to input anything almost anything they want so
0: as you as you said there's uh, probably two groups that this is this is most uh... targeted at people who are uh, musically inclined or people who are numerically inclined so when someone who is musically inclined goes to the website uh... and starts looking around what would you kind of uh, expect or or think that they
3: will be getting out of out of it well it, it a process of discovery basically because most of the time when a, a composer inputs numbers uh, and i also have used dna as well or letters they don't n- really know what the result's going to be the way I work is I'll ins- I'll input some numbers, a, st- a, a, a numeric sequence, and then I'll scale it to a, r- a range of a musical instrument. It could be the full range of the piano, it could be the range of the violin. And in that scaling process, I don't know where those numbers are going to fall in the, in the keyboard range. I, I don't know if I'm going to have many black keys, many white keys, a mix of both. and And that's a process of discovery that's, very interesting to me and it's a usually one thinks of a composer sort of sitting at the piano and waiting for inspiration and they get it and they work work out a a catchy melody but this is different this is like the computers giving me a melody that's derived from something that may have meaning to me may not have meaning but at least it's something derived from something other than myself
0: now, what about a, a numerically inclined person, much more like myself? I've, I'm, I've tried to be in bands. I'm terribly <laughs> unmusical as a as as a kind of default rule. Uh, what what would you think that I might uh, be able to find? I mean, there, there's a spoiler. I, I have actually gone and played around on the oh, site. Okay, but if I was first coming to
3: it, what would you uh, kind of think that I might uh, find from it? Well, I mean. I, I, on the most basic level, a musical experience because you will have, whether you like it or not, you will have composed a melody. And uh, the nice thing about it is if you compose a melody that you don't like, you can always go back and in a few clicks later compose a <laughs> new one. And sometimes I've had students create a melody that wasn't so interesting and they are listening to it with a piano sound and then when they moved the Cursor to a, a marimba sound, or or some other instrument, actually sound a lot better. So it might depend on what the sounds are, what what, the, what vehicle the melody is coming through in terms of instrumentation. But yeah, it, it's basically a musical experience that that that's um, closer to where your interests are with their math, you know, with their numbers. You could have the same musical experience by going to the piano and. And, and, and trying to lay down some melodies. No, no, I couldn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I, I like to think that maybe it's idealistic of me, but I like to think that there are these music, musical experiences that people could have. Would I, you like me to demonstrate oh something? Oh, yes, please. Okay. I would, I would love, to, love to watch you demonstrate one of these. Great. So um, let's start with a simple one like Pascal's Triangle because that's pretty familiar to, to most people. And uh, in step one of the algorithm, we're going to basically tell the software how, you know, how many rows of Pascal's triangle do we want to hear. So let's let's just take ten rows. And when I ask it to present those rows, we see that um, the numbers get quite large rather quickly. We start with the number one, and by the tenth row, we've got a high number of one twenty-six, one hundred twenty-six. In the next step of the algorithm, we want to basically map, take those numbers from Pascal's triangle and map them to an instrument range. And the default setting is for piano. Now we can hear it with silence or we can hear without, just all pitches. Um, let's do it with all pitches without any silence. And I'm going to ask it to do what's called a division operation or proportionate representation so all the high numbers in Pascal's triangle will be mapped to high pitches on the piano and all the low numbers to low pitches on the piano so be proportionate spreading out of those Pascal's numbers throughout the piano then I can ask it to apply some similar principles with rhythm or what's called duration of the pitches. But just for a simple demonstration, I'll just use a uniform static rhythm so that we can just hear the numbers of Pascal moving through the, the keyboard. So I'll play it first with just plain rhythms and then second I'll go back and, and uh, add More rhythmic variety. (laughs) (laughs) So if you know Pascal's triangle, it's surrounded by ones, but in each row the numbers get larger and then they go back to one again. So we're gonna hear a lot of low notes on the piano. And ever ever so often we're gonna hear it the, the sort of a melodic break from from those low notes, and it's gonna get a little higher. Here we go.
0: You go. That actually sounds exactly like what I would expect
3: the triangle to sound like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's really neat is, um, before I go into the rhythm part, in our, in our new revised form for this, we're actually applying inverse exponential functions. So we can actually do, m- we can go deeper into Pascal's triangle with much larger numbers and uh, hear those as well. Would you like to hear an example at this time? With the oh industry? sure, Okay. Yeah. This is uh, something my uh, students are working on right now. was roughly, I think it was 20 rows. <laughs> I'm, I'm counting 19, but I'm sure it must be 20 from this Pascal's triangle.
0: Yeah, values going as high as what 92,378. Yes,
3: and the inverse exponential function helps bring those down to scale. <laughs> um, it's also, I don't know if you notice, it's mapped to a diatonic, what we call a diatonic uh, major scale for. Um, in, in musical terms, so it's it, it's a ple- it should be a quote unquote pleasant sound, and uh, you can hear it was slightly different from the the previous one. That way, uh, let's try it with rhythm, uh, a little bit of rhythmic variation. What we can do is take the same Pascal numbers in the same order, and uh, ask ask the program to. Uh, Make those numbers that are small, like ones and twos, uh, to be uh, of a short duration and those that are higher numbers to be of longer duration. <laughs> really wanted to hold that high note. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, yeah. Another thing we can try is modulo. If we really wanted to shake it up a bit, um, it's tricky to explain modulo in a nutshell. But the end result is we're going to have a lot more variety uh, rhythmically because. Any number, whether it's low or high, could be equal to any other number that might be low or high. So it's an operation using
0: some sort of modular arithmetic. Exactly. So just dealing with the remainder, so you're never entirely sure what you're going
3: to have. Exactly. We're going to do mod 3 now with our Pascal's triangle, and we'll see what we get out of that.
0: to sound more and more like music at this point yes so mathematicians have have been looking at things like pascal's triangle they've been looking at pi phi the distribution of prime numbers things like that for millennia at this point (laughs) depending on which of those things you're talking about Uh, and so i was wondering if you think that there might be something in representing them this way that that might be able to perhaps give someone who's, who's been looking at it visually for so long a, a different kind of perspective on, on how to, say, maybe tackle a problem or anything like that.
3: Yeah, i like to think there is uh, that possibility. I, I, I mean, we have all kinds of senses, right? We have visual and, and, and tactile, but this is an, an oral experience, an oral representation. I, I think sometimes where we, things pop out, things become more salient when we hear them instead of just seeing them. I know, personally, having worked with decimals expansions of Pi, with this software, I've, I've learned more about Pi, and I've learned more about where certain, like, the numeric distribution of the first 20 numbers of, or 30 numbers of Pi are, which is kind of interesting. Like, there aren't many zeros at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't Where are the zeros? Uh, so, I think that, from my own I mean, I'm not a mathematician. I'm a composer, but yeah. I, I would think that there can be some very interesting uh, experiences through sound, and and maybe sound graphing uh, numeric sequences where things would actually become more salient, or in, it, maybe maybe more so if you had a long, very long string of numbers and it was just really hard to see. You know patterns. You could hear those patterns, which would be really exciting. I was going to do fifty digits of pi. You know, there's there's one zero here, <laughs> the first fifty digits, and I can hear that. I can that would be the, that would be the silence if, if I did it. I don't know. Do you want to do you want to hear the silence?
0: Yeah. Um, So the silence of Pi, now that that sounds like some really high-level composition. The the, the
3: silent note in (laughs) Pi. Did you hear the skip? (laughs) That was the silence. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of wacky result there, I admit. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, with with something like Pascal's Triangle, where there there's an inherent structure built into the way that the triangle is created. Now, uh, it, I don't believe we know whether or not pi is actually random. I can't remember if it's the normal distribution or not. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my math that I apparently forgot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is, it, it to the ear, it sounds a lot more kind of scattershot. So. Yeah. I was wondering kind of how, when you're, when you're doing some composition work, you can deal with the difference
3: between like a, a structured example and, and a more chaotic example. Right. Well, I like to think I can deal with any, anything that's thrown, thrown at me here. And if, it's, if it seems more chaotic, I can actually scale it in ways so that the musical result actually is a little bit more, uh, uh, feels more managed.
0: Just by changing the like the length or the length of the possible scale notes and the actual uh, operation used.
3: Yes. What I did was I took the uh, numbers of through decimal expansion of pi and applied a modulo operation. So they actually got all mixed. They, they were already apparently chaotic <laughs> from the beginning. I made it even more chaotic, but in a in a very confined environment, there were only like six. I think it was mods. I actually did mod seven with the nine numbers. And then with the rhythmic durations, I actually used a uh, proportionate representation so that the lower numbers of pi were short values and the higher numbers were long values. The result, I had no idea what I was going to get. The result had a very haunting kind of feel to it, which is kind of interesting. I'm sure there are other ways of approaching it where I could make a much more cheerier presentation. <laughs> yeah, but we—I mean, we all know pi is a haunting number. It, it's mysterious <laughs>
0: and haunting. <laughs> so, how did how did the the sound of, of your personal compositions change once you started uh, dealing with uh, algorithmic composition?
4: Uh,
3: I think the sound may not have changed. So much as the way I approached composing music. In the past I've applied a much more free-form approach where I would uh, find some ideas of the keyboard and develop them freely. And here I was giving myself through the program a set of results to work with. And that was interesting because the process actually begins with a very fun approach to composition. Uh, it took away all the anxieties of how do I start a piece. So I, I try to start with numbers or DNA sequences that have some interest for me personally, and then I map, map those numbers or, or letters to uh, certain instruments that interest me. And I hear the results, and if I like the results, I I end up working with them. So, as an example, I wrote a symphony called Redwood Symphony using Redwood DNA. The letters obviously get translated into numbers, and then those numbers get translated into, into pitches. instrument I was writing for was the xylophone and it's a wood instrument (laughs) and usually symphonic works don't start with the xylophone (laughs) that was also fun and uh, that piece has been performed quite a few times and professionally recorded so it's I think that on some level my my engagement with music through this vehicle is actually Uh, engage listeners too, and musicians, which is nice.
0: Speaking of that, what sort of reaction have you gotten from the composition community or, or, the, or the math community? I, I know of a specific mathematician you have worked with.
3: Uh, what sort of reactions have you gotten to your work? You know, I think uh, some musicians are intrigued and interested. Others have told me that this is not music, which is fair enough. It probably depends how you define music. Uh, I had a student tell me one time that this is more than music and I have to say that a lot of scientists and mathematicians are very very embracing and welcoming of, of this uh, of this tool they 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 really get it and they dig it from the musical community it you know it, it varies the responses vary but I, I there are times when I'll take the the Raw output, the algorithmic result, and I'll just put it on the page and give it to a musician and see what they <laughs> do with it. But most of the time, I don't do that. I what I do is I refine and edit and I, I, shape the result to to meet other other objectives. I mean, the objective is not to hear pi. It's actually to create a composition that has some of myself in it too. Yeah. So it just
0: it just becomes just part of your toolbox of composition.
3: Part of the toolbox, it's actually what I like to call a starting point. It used to be in like in, in medieval music, uh, composers would take a, a plain chant melody and they would adopt that for their larger choral pieces. So, it we, we call that, you know, taking a theme and adding variations. And that is kind of what I'm doing here. I'm getting a melody, taking a result, and then using that as a starting point. And and that's a wonderful place to be as a composer, to actually have something to start with.
0: Uh, So on your website you mentioned that, um, you mentioned a lot of of your compositions today have to do with numbers and nature. You mentioned the Redwood Symphony. So what other sort of things from nature are are you now uh, using to help start out your work?
3: Well, I like looking at uh, like endangered species or threatened species. So I wrote a piano piece recently using DNA from the boreal toad. Lately, I've been actually doing some work for scientists in translating their data uh, into melodic representations. And I've been having some fun with with that, it's not, it's it's a different way of composing, or different. How can I say it's a different purpose for composition? Uh, I'm used to writing a score for musicians that would get hopefully performed in a concert hall, and now I find myself writing melodies for scientists, uh, some of whom are in Finland, England, and uh, really basically helping them out in, in hearing their, their data, which is new and exciting for me and kind of fun. But I haven't been uh, approaching those projects with the purpose of writing a, a composition. I've basically just been helping them out. So uh, new projects, uh, you know, I, I might look at uh, star charts, might try to work with chaos. I haven't done that yet. Um, what I find with music algorithms is like a life, a lifelong set of projects, and so I, I don't ever anticipating having writer's block or being lost looking for a project. There's just too much out there, and I haven't as as the as the as the project manager for creating the software i there are still algorithms on the site that i haven't explored fully yet
0: well i i mean a, a career without writer's block that's every creative person's dream i think
3: yeah <laughs> ab- yeah absolutely i it, it's I, I think that when an artist has a grasp of of what they what what's meaningful to them then it's it's a it's it's a wonderful space to to be in because they end up being more productive and uh spending less time worrying about what they're doing and more time producing so i have i have to say i'm very fortunate for that
4: I am Danny Hanson, Samuel Hanson's father, and that is it for this episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank the guests who are also our musicians this time around, Professor Scott Ricard of University College Dublin, Robert Schneider, lead singer of the Apples and Stereo, whom we also heard, and Professor Jonathan Middleton of Eastern Washington University for being nice enough to actually speak to my son. If you want to find out more about the guests or the music, or if you want to discuss the show, please join us over at relprime.com. Oh, and while you're on the Internet, why not head over to iTunes and leave a review of the show? It really does help other people find it. And if you have any feedback about the show, just email samuel at acmescience.com. That is my son's personal email address. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike license, and any remixes are greatly looked forward to. Thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for the next episode.